you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is my journey through the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I review one episode of Rod Serling's iconic series and round out the show with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's main topic. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror and Dimension 404 in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Today on the show, I'll be discussing Back There, which is the 13th episode of Twilight Zone's second season, and it aired on January 13th, 1961. And for this week's bonus review, I'll share my thoughts on the 1960 adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. And as usual, uh, before I begin my talent rundown and review of the episode, I'm going to read a plot description courtesy of Martin Grahams Jr.'s uh, Twilight Zone Unlocking, a door to, unlock, unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. Um, and of course, this is going to be completely spoiler-filled, so from here on out, we are going. I'm going to be spoiling the entirety of the episode back there, so consider yourself warned. Late one evening, Peter Corrigan discusses the subject of time travel with other members of a private club. One member claims he could alter the course of past events and then profit from his knowledge of the past. Corrigan, however, disagrees with them, believing that if he went back in time, he could only participate in what has already happened. The present day will never be altered. As he exits the building, however, he finds himself transported back to 1865. The very evening, President Lincoln will be assassinated. When Corrigan tries to warn people of the oncoming assassination, the police arrest him for being drunk and disorderly. A doctor named Wellington arranges for Corrigan's release in the hopes of curing the young man of a case of dementia. In Wellington's hotel room, Corrigan's efforts to convince the doctor that the president will be assassinated fails when he discovers he's been drugged. Walking from the, uh, waking from the effects of the drug, Corrigan learns he is too late. News shouts through the streets of the president's death, and Corrigan discovers Wellington's real name is John Wilkes Booth. Returning to the president, Corrigan discovers a few minor changes. The answer to the question of whether time travel would alter the events of the past is answered. While a man can alter the events on a small scale in his return of, uh, to the past, the changes will only be no- noticeable to the time traveler. So starring in this episode is Russell Johnson as Pete Corrigan. This is his second and final Twilight Zone appearance, and those two Twilight Zone episodes are his only collaborations with Rod Serling. He was previously in Execution, uh, which I had the pleasure of reviewing with Brandon Cruz as a guest on his podcast, Submitted for Your Approval. And let's see, Russell Johnson was also in one episode of The Outer Limits in 1964, titled Specimen Unknown. And, of course, he's most well-known for playing the professor on Gilligan's Island. And as Jonathan Wellington is John La- uh, Lassell, this is his only episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, he did appear in an episode of Night Gallery in the segment Little Girl Lost, um, which, as far as I can tell, is not related to the 
Twilight Zone episode that I think that there, I, I mean I think there's an episode of the Twilight Zone titled Little Girl Lost, but I don't think it's related to the Night Gallery segment. I could be wrong. If I am, feel free to correct, correct me. And then John Lassell also appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond, um, which was titled Tonight at 12.17. And Rod Serling wrote the script for this episode. And according to Martin Krams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to Television Classic, uh, this episode was originally conceived as an hour-long story and was actually shopped around to different uh, 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 different uh, productions. And it, he shopped it to Armstrong Circle Theater, which was the only hour-long anthology show that was airing at the time. But they weren't interested in the script, and um, sponsors for The Twilight Zone didn't want to expand the show to an hour-long episode. So Serling ended up shortening the script to 23 minutes. Um, I'm curious what kind of changes were made and uh, what the full script was like, but I don't I don't have access to that. Uh, director for this episode was David Orrick McDearman. Um, this is his final of three Twilight Zone episodes. He previously directed Execution and A Thing About Machines. So going into this episode as a first-time viewer, I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that it had something to do with time travel and then it star and that it starred the uh, professor from Execution. Or the doctor, I think he was a doctor in execution. He was a professor on Gilgan's Island. But anyway, uh, the title itself back there, it made me think of, it made me think that it was going to be kind of a nostalgia story, kind of like walking distance. Like I kind of imagined a wistful feeling of wanting to go back there to a simpler time. And I was, I was pretty wrong on that, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so going into the episode, I thought that it was really uh, quick to establish like exactly what Corrigan and his friends are. They're kind of upper class um, academic types, and I feel like the the set of the Potomac Club, uh, it, it, like it clearly it clearly shows like exactly what what type of people these these people are and 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 what their uh, what their classes, I guess. Um, they're clearly like high class intellectual types. So I thought that that was just a really easy way to, not easy way, but a very clean way to introduce us to the characters. Um, and then we meet Corgan and right into it, we're into a discussion of time travel paradoxes. And, um, right at that point, I'm, I'm already on board with this episode. So I, I adore time travel stories. I, I love time travel stories. One of my favorite movies is Back to the Future. And I mean, I have just so many movies that I just, I love because of time travel aspects to them. So throughout this review, I'm probably going to be, um, talking a little more to that, but, um, Corgan's theory. So in their discussion, they're they're talking about how they can change the past if they go back to the date that the stock market crashed. Uh, they could they could change it or or use it to their advantage and everything. But Corgan's theory is that the date of the stock market crash is a fixed date in history and that it will always remain that. And that's kind of a concept that they've used in Doctor Who, um, like the idea of like fixed dates in history. And just as a, as a tangent, my first tangent of this episode is that I love this idea of certain historical events becoming somewhat like chapters or bookmarks in time. Like one of the things that's most appealing uh, about time travel as a narrative concept to me is 
that it's essentially editing. Like there's such a strong desire in most people to want to make things right or to go back and change. Like they want to make, they want to make things perfect. And, um, time travel makes the viewer or character perceive time as a narrative. Um, and then the time traveler actually becomes the editor editor of that narrative. So it's the idea of time travel as a concept and time travel as a narrative device is very much kind of a creative idea um, because the time travel, like I said, becomes the narr- the editor of the narrative. And there's something to be said about God complexes and time travel characters, obviously, as well. <laughs> um, uh, just that I don't. Obviously, it it takes a lot for a time traveler to time traveler to think. Oh, I'm going to be the sole person to correct something that time has has given us. Essentially, time travel time travelers view the timeline and and the narrative as imperfect and fixable. So they take it upon themselves to correct God or the universe and their imperfections that they've done. So. I don't know. I don't know if I'm communicating that clearly, but the ego that's required for a time travel character um, to think that they know what's best for the universe is something that I find really fascinating from a character perspective. And that's one of the reasons why I just, I love time travel stories. And so anyway, to go back to this episode, it reminded me a little bit of the time element. Um, Rod Serling's um, first, first Twilight Zone script, essentially, um, that aired before the Twilight Zone was, was picked up and everything. Uh, I reviewed it with Tiny in a previous episode of this podcast, but, uh, had I not already reviewed it with Tiny, it really would have made a great bonus review for this episode. Um, so the reason why I picked the time machine as the bonus review is that there's a reference to HG Wells as Corgan gets up to leave. And, uh, I just, I was kind of tickled by that. I thought that was, that was kind of cute, I guess. Um, and, and what I really like about this, like I'll, I'll get to the actual time travel and my, my reaction to it. But what I like about this scene where he gets up to leave and he's, he's about to, to time travel without knowing it. Um, what I like about that is that the script isn't on the nose or sloppily written or anything like it could have been so easy for them to have the characters sit down, talk about preventing the stock, the stock market crash or changing it or what have you. And then Corgan gets up and, Oh, he's going to be time traveling back to 1920 or, um, 1939. Uh, when the, when the stock market crashed, like that's when he's going to go. But the episode just subverts that expectation by taking him to a completely different time and different event and everything. And I just, I love that the conversation that was, that was, that was had was solely to ease the audience into the concept and, uh, into the characters and their, their viewpoints of it. And it's just such a relief that this episode doesn't hold our hand by having Corrigan magically travel back to the area, to the era that they were just discussing. I feel like, when you have a time travel story in, in a narrative, it is so like, okay, I've, I've explained that I love time travel stories, but not, it's not for everyone. Not everyone loves time travel. And when you're creating a show or a movie that is too meant to appeal to as wide an audience as, as you can, it, it's so easy for, you know, interference from like the studio side of it to, 
have the narrative be as plain and straightforward as possible. In this episode, it's it's just nice that we don't have that that kind of handholding for the audience. I just I really respect this episode for that. And just uh, and just uh, the way that Corgan gets up to leave, and he says, "Since no one has gone back in time, I find it too theoretical." The conversation. Um, I just I I I don't know. I just I love. I think time travel is such a fun conceit for um for a narrative. And so when Corgan leaves, he does like a double take to someone that he passes by. Um that kind of left me a little confused. Um I guess it was kind of needed for him to bump into William the uh the uh the butler guy or the server. Um uh, but it just kind of felt like kind of kind of strange to me. Um cuz I thought that that was going to come into play later like he had seen like they could have gone deeper into like time travel stories and have it be like he's doing a double take because he just saw himself at a different time. Um, but I mean, that's not what the story was really going for or anything. So, but at the time when I first saw it, when I, in my first initial reaction to Corgan doing the double take, I kind of thought like, is this going to get a little more, um, is this going to be like a, there are a few different types of time travel stories. Like there's the intellectual one that that's is, is like this episode where it's, you know, going back in time to change events and everything. And then there's the kind like, like the movie primer or time crimes that it, um, it plays with the convention of time travel by making a very, very, um, intricately woven, storyline that has, you know, overlapping timelines, timelines going throughout it. So I kind of wondered if maybe this would be like a time crimes or a primer type of story. Um, and so that kind of, that threw me off a little bit when I first saw it, when he did the double take. So when he steps outside, he actually had like the time travel device. I, I really like the way that this is depicted. So it's very, it's very simplistic and straightforward. Um, the camera just kind of comes out of focus when Corrigan steps outside and that's, indicating that he's traveled through time. Um, very straightforward. I love that there's no explanation. There's no reason for it. It just, it just happens. And that's, that's perfect. Cause you, when you get into a deeper, um, into, when you get into explaining the time travel, the, I mean, the story just can fall by the wayside and it can become, you can go down a rabbit hole of explaining the time travel. And then time travel is such an out there concept for narratives that, you'll have people that watch it and then they pick apart the explanation. So it's better to just not have an explanation. Um, and that's, that's what I love about it. Like that's something I really loved about this, uh, episode is that they don't explain the time travel. They just put us in the time travel. And, uh, so the actual camera changing or camera coming out of focus and everything like that's enough in its own, in its own way to, uh, that's an effective enough, uh, device to show us that he traveled through time. But then they show the lantern. Uh, it changes from a lamp to uh, to a, a lantern. And I thought that, like, even though we already had the camera going in and out of focus, um, and that would have been perfectly fine and minimalistic, uh, showing the lamp changing into the lantern is just a very nice touch and a very nice, like, kind of flourish to the to the video or to the visual cues of of showing us that he's traveled through time. Um, I really appre- appreciated that. And then immediately when he's back in 1865, I just noticed that the music is drastically different than, 
uh, from what we usually get in the episode. And it's very unexpected, but I really liked it, and I thought that it was a very ominous type of uh, musical number, and I, I really liked it. And so on a metal level, I really liked where we were going with this episode because uh the act the actor russell johnson he is now in this moment he uh he is now basically in the exact opposite role of his character in execution so in execution he brought a character from the past into the future and that character had spent the rest of the episode like acclimating to the present day in in freaking out over it and everything so now there's a reversal where now this actor is portraying a character that is in that is similar to the character that he was playing off of in execution. So now he is the one who has traveled through time and has to uh, react to. It. And I thought that that was I, I just like that on a meta level uh, throughout the like history of the Twilight Zone. I kind of I kind of like that kind of interchange there, I guess. And uh, so he's kind of wandering through the town, and um, I believe he goes to his apartment, and I, I like that the. Uh, I guess the, I guess it's a border house. Um, the the woman in charge. Or I love the way that her mood just completely changes when he says that he's an engineer. So like I I just I I like that because it's like he's just a guy off a, off the street, and then she's asking if he's in the war and everything, and then he just mentions I'm an engineer, and she's like, oh okay, well here's your room and everything. Um, I I kind of like that. So at this point, we get characters that are in the house that are kind of referencing that they're going to going to a play. And at this point, I had no idea where we were going with this. Um, I'll admit my ignorance. Even though the set design and everything was clearly 1865, I kind of thought for a second, like, okay, did he actually go back to 19... I think it was 1939 when the when the stock market crashed. But anyway, did he go back to, did he go back to then or like, where, where is he in time? And then as soon as they referenced the president, uh, it just clicked with me that, Oh my God, this is a Lincoln assassination plot. And I was floored by that. I thought that that was such a cool surprise. Um, and, and it's so, it shows my ignorance so much that I didn't see it coming. Cause even the date, like they referenced the date, um, that he was coming from is April 14th, 1961. And obviously April 14th, 1865 is when Lincoln was assassinated, assassinated. So you would think that that plus the clear, clearly, uh, um, 19th century set design would have signaled that to me, but I'm, I don't know my first viewing. I just, I, it didn't even register with me. And so I just, I was so excited about that because, um, I don't know. I think part of that was because I had uh, watched, um, I think it was Profile in Silver from the 80s Twilight Zone. And like that is about a character who goes uh, back in time and uh, with the uh, with the Kennedy assassination. And just, I don't know, I, I wasn't expecting uh, the original Twilight Zone to tackle the Lincoln assassination. So I was very, I was very excited about that. And so at this point, um, to kind of break off into another tangent about time travel, there's kind of something that can be said about time travels, tra- time travelers. I have so much trouble saying that word out loud. Time travelers and their kind of, their sort of duty to change the past. So Corrigan has been transported magically to, uh, 1865. It's 96 years in the past for no apparent reason. Like from his perspective and from our perspective as, as audience members, 
we have no context for why he was why he was transported back. So other than him and his friends debating the concept of time travel, time travel, there's nothing in the opening scenes to make you think there is a purpose for the time travel. And despite this, Corgan's first instinct, his his immediate instinct when he finds out when he when he is that's such a such I didn't mean to do that. That is such a corny thing like um the whole trope of like, when, uh, when are we? But anyway, despite this, Corgan's first instinct, when he finds out when in time he is, um, his first instinct instinct is to try to save Lincoln. And there's kind of a sort of nobility to that. Um, that there's this man who has barely compre- comprehended the weight of what has just happened to him in his gut reaction when confronted with the one piece of information that he is absolutely certain about being the Lincoln assassination is to fling himself into the quote-unquote narrative of April 14th in 1865 in an attempt to save Lincoln's life. And I don't know, there's such, there's, and that's, that's spread across all of time travel fiction, essentially, that it's, it's always assumed that the, the character traveling through time has this duty or purpose to change the past. And it's this kind of nobility factor to that character that, uh, makes him makes the central character of this type of story um i don't know if i would say relatable um well i guess relatable to an extent because we always you know we kind of want to be that person we want to be that person that changes everything um but yeah it's 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 uh it brings kind of a likability to the character that um that i appreciate so you can argue that it's just it's just plot convenience that, oh, he's in 1865, so he needs to save Lincoln. There's nothing more to there, more to that, and that maybe I'm reading into it. But I think that that's something that's subtextually in the time travel story, of like in all of time travel stories like this, that does, doesn't offer an explanation. It's just they're there. Um, I kind of, I think that you can read into that and be accurate. And it's also interesting to note that um, immediately, again, immediately after finding out the date, he is immediately working against his own thesis about fixed points in time. So it's, it's just funny that mere moments ago, he was, ta- he was talking about how, you know, yeah, it's going to happen anyway. The stock, stock crash is going to happen anyway. So it's not, uh, you can't prevent it. And then he's immediately in a position where he can, change the past and he doesn't even second guess it or anything. I kind of, I liked that turn because it's more about the, the character who's traveled through time, basically seeing it as, as an opportunity, like not even questioning, um, not even questioning it or bringing in his own rational thought into it. It's just, he's there, he's going to, he's going to do it. Um, and so the police don't believe him. So he goes and he reports it and everything. And the police don't actually believe him. And I don't know, or actually the police bring him into the station because he was, he was trying to, uh, to prevent it or, and they, and they don't believe him. And maybe this is 2017, Matt, or I guess it's 2018 now. Damn. Uh, 2018, Matt viewing it through that lens. But I don't know if I necessarily buy that the police wouldn't believe him. Um, just because, I mean, you have the president, you like the president's whereabouts are known. Um, and and when I say 2018, Matt, I don't think I'm not saying like, 
I'm not saying that I don't think it was uh, um, believable that they wouldn't that they wouldn't capture him because uh, I'm gonna walk myself into a corner here. But okay, let me start over. So the police don't believe him, and I had trouble kind of buying into that. Not from like a this episode was written in the '60s and and they and people in the '60s would would buy into it or anything. I mean that as in. I don't, I don't know it, how much I buy that police in the 1860s wouldn't believe a person saying that the president was going to be assassinated when it's common knowledge where and when the president was going to be. Um, and like, and again, I don't know because I'm living in a time where, you know, like the Kennedy assassination was a huge, obviously a huge thing that affected change in the way that pre- like security detail and the and president's public appearance like security increased so much and everything so i don't know what the kind of police um reaction would have been in 1865 so anyway to that effect i kind of wish that there would have been like i would have liked to have seen um a scene where uh where Corrigan tells the police like, Oh yeah, John Wilkes Booth is going to assassinate Lincoln. I kind of would have liked to see that. Um, I kind of would have liked to see a scene where he says that. And then they kind of do like the whole, uh, (laughs) the whole, uh, doc Brown, uh, Marty McFly scene where it's like, Oh, John Wilkes Booth, the actor. Um, I just, I kind of would have liked to see, to have seen the, uh, a scene like that, but I guess having them recognize the name would have made Jonathan Wellington's inclusion in the in the station uh, a little problematic. And so then, obviously, we get to Jonathan Wellington's introduction, and um, <laughs> it was it was funny because when I first saw this episode, my initial reaction was, "Who is that?" And I was wondering if he was one of the people that were at the table in the first scene. And I couldn't, I couldn't place him from, from memory from that first scene. I didn't like pause and go back and check or anything like that. So I kind of wondered at that point, I was wondering, it would be kind of interesting if it was like a character was chasing him through time, kind of like time after time. But, um, but that's not, that's not where the narrative went. But what I, what I kind of laughed to myself about is that when watching it, I made in my notes that the actor playing Jonathan Wellington reminds me of a Shakespeare character. And, and yeah, so it, the fact that he is John Wilkes Booth in reality in this episode is just kind of, I like the way that the actor portrayed, um, portrayed him. Cause when he is in the police station, it's clear that he's, he's doing a performance. He's very theatrical and very, he kind of has a Shakespearean kind of quality to him. Um, and to go back to my thoughts that it could have been another time traveler, I, I kind of would have been. I don't know if I'd say more interested, but I would have been very interested to see a story where two time travelers arrive in 1865 with very different views as to what to do about this, the assassination. Like I would have liked to see two characters kind of arguing, basically having the conversation at the beginning of this episode where they argue whether or not they could, they should attempt like kind of tempt fate or tempt the universe by trying to correct the past. And so the police writing off Corrigan as uh, a soldier who left his mind in Gettysburg, that's 
actually kind of really heartbreaking. Um, it fits historically. Like I don't, I don't think PTSD was even on the radar until after World War II, and even then, it was just considered they they just called it shell shock, and and they didn't. Um, I think that was World War One. Yeah, they and they didn't. It wasn't anything that was treated until. I don't believe it was anything treated until World War II, but it wasn't anything that was in the public conscience conscience until after like World War II. And I just, that scene, like it feels so, that, that line feels so authentic and everything and kind of even more heartbreaking that this was written by Serling, who of course had, had his own demons from, from the war. Then we get the scene with Corrigan and uh, Wellington and where Wellington poisons him um, or drugs him, I should say, and uh, to take him out of the equation so he, he can assassinate the president. And when I first saw this, I honestly, um, when when Corrigan is shown to be drugged, I kind of thought for a second that it was actually the universe kind of course correcting which I really enjoy in time travel stories and everything. I mean, it's it's a very interesting narrative structure. Like uh, Stephen King's eleven twenty two sixty three is a is a really good example of that because essentially the universe and time trying to pre- preserve itself. It's they it becomes an antagonist uh, in its own, but it, that's not what we got. So I kind of um, at that point I was like I kind of bet that he's actually John Hulk's booth. So I was kind of proud of myself for for catching that. And I really like that basically uh, Wellington's conversation with Corgan after he gets Corgan out of jail can basically be boiled down to John Wilkes Booth interrogating Corgan for information about who else knows about the assassination attempt. And at least that's kind of how I read it, that he's he's trying to get information uh, so that he can execute his his plan and the president. and I just I really like the writing of that because it's not like I said earlier, like this is not an episode that's holding the audience's hand. And I think that that's very admirable because, I mean, it's all kind of subtext like John Wilkes Booth is has plans. And this is the kind of vagueness of the conversation with Corgan is works so well in that favor because it's not revealed to us that he's John Wilkes Booth until later. So it's it kind of. um conversation that you go back and watch after you've seen this episode and it just clicks together even more it's it's an episode that invites uh repeat viewings and it's just it's really well structured i just really like that as a as a uh narrative device to conceal the twist to the audience while also um moving the story along and so then after Corgan's drugged, he kind of crawls across the hotel room to get to the door. And that sequence, that was just a little too long for me. Um, like I get that it was supposed to be tense since we saw that the play had already started, but it just goes on just a little too long for my taste. Um, and it's not like it leads to Corgan like going to the, to Ford's theater to prevent it or anything. It's just that it's, it's kind of he's just crawling to the door. It just uh, as a time factor, it didn't it didn't really do anything for me in terms of suspense. And then kind of the kind of the denouement of the of the episode, I guess, where um, he's 
about to go back into the future and everything. He, he's yelling that he tried to warn you. I tried to warn you. Why didn't you listen? I thought that was okay. Um, um, after it was revealed that Wellington was Booth all along. Um, I don't know. I, I just thought that that was, it didn't really leave an impression on me, I should say. And so when he gets back to the present, it turns out that he did change the past, even though he didn't save Lincoln or anything. Um, just he changed the past and in that his interactions with the, the cop at the station led to the waiter becoming a millionaire. Um, and I kind of like the pseudo offense that the character, the, the millionaire character takes at the suggestion that he was once an attendant at the club. Um, it's, it's just, it goes back to kind of like the class, uh, depiction in this episode. Like he even pulls rank on Corrigan in a manner of speaking. He says like, I've been, I've been a member of this club for, I, I forget what, exactly what he said, but he kind of just says that he's been, he's been there for, for a long time. And, uh, and yeah, so it just, it just seems, uh, or I, I just like the kind of offense that he takes at the mere suggestion that he was once an attendant at the club. Um, so I, I kind of, kind of overall, I, I like the overall message and the story of the episode. I, 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 like I said, I'm kind of a sucker for time travel stories. Um, I kind of wish there was a little bit more about John Wilkes Booth in this episode. Um, it just seemed kind of, I don't know, perfunctory that he was, he's, he's just there just to, uh, uh, drug Corgan and then that's it. I, I don't know what else we could have had with him, but, um, I kind of, I kind of, maybe I just like the actor a lot and I would have liked to see more, but, um, yeah, overall it was a pretty okay episode. I enjoyed it. Um, it was good. I liked it. Uh, probably middle, not, I wouldn't say middle of the road. It's a little bit above average for me, uh, quite a bit above average because it actually did give me a lot to think about in terms of, it it made me reflect on why I like time travel stories so much. And that's something that I respect about it. And the way that it's just, it's, it's a quality done time travel story that doesn't, uh, dumb it down for us. Or I don't know if I'd say dumb it down, but it doesn't, it doesn't hold our hands throughout the entire, throughout the concept. And that's something that I, that I respect out of science fiction, really. Um, and the p- only real piece of trivia that I have is that Jerry Goldsmith's score for this episode was reused partially in Nightmare at 20,000 Feet and Death Ship. And that's courtesy of the Twilight Zone Companion. Um, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I've got on that. Um, yeah, so that, that'll do it for my review of Back There. Um, I'm gonna play a, uh, brief clip from one of my other podcasts and, Uh, then I'll go into my bonus review of uh, The Time Machine. So enjoy this short clip. It's, it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition because you get this wide, wide angle view of just Colin Farrell and another character walking down a hallway. So it's, it's this kind of like, it does this, this weird, like mental trick with your mind that you're seeing this you're seeing this enclosed space, but it's a wide angle, so you see like everything around it. It's like you see both sides of the hallway. Like there's sounds a, like Kubrick a little bit. And that's a, yes, and that was yeah. my next point. Okay, um, it very much evokes memories of like Kubrick's Kubrick, uh, Kubrick films. Okay, and that clip came from a, a recent episode of the Obsessive Viewer, which is a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friend Tiny and assorted guest 
guests uh, on occasion. Uh, you can find more of The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at ObsessiveViewer.com. You can also find more of my podcasting overall at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. And so for my bonus review for this week, I am going to review The Time Machine from 1960. It was directed by George Powell and written by David Duncan based on, of course, the uh, timeless H.G. Wells uh, uh, novel, The Time Machine, which I should say up front, um, I've never read The Time Machine. I really want to, but it just hasn't, uh, I haven't gotten around to it at this point. So I don't have that. I don't have the story of the of the novel as a point of reference. I have seen the 2002 remake, um, but it's been several years, and to be honest, the movie did not leave an impression on me. So, um, so yeah, I might as well be going into this cold. So, right from the outset, I kind of wondered how the movie would compare to Time After Time, which I reviewed on a previous bonus review. Um, and I, I think I enjoyed this movie a little bit, I don't know, probably about the same as Time After Time, maybe a little bit more. Um, there's some really good stuff in it. So H.G. Uh, Wells is the central character played by Rod Taylor, who I really love the way that Rod Taylor carried himself throughout the movie. He is, he's got kind of the strong leading man demeanor, but since he is since he's um since he's basically telling a story of him traveling through time through various points in time um he doesn't have while he is a strong leading man he doesn't have that like supporting cast to really play off of so it's the kind of the the narrative and the strength of the movie rests on his shoulders cuz he is basically interacting with new sets of characters each time he travels through time. So I just, I just really appreciate and admire the way that Rod Taylor was able to take on that task and, and carry himself as, as a leading man. That's, uh, that's the maybe not movie star quality, but like he's, he carried it very well and, and held my attention. Um, and early on in the movie, um, when he's explaining time travel, he's, he's kind of showing off his, a model of the time machine to his friends. Um, there's one line that really stuck out to me that I really loved. It was, uh, they're talking about, uh, they're talking about how they, how we can, how we as people can navigate through the three dimensions of, of space and everything. Um, but not the fourth. So he says that when it comes to time, we are prisoners. And I, I just love that sentiment because again, I love time travel and the idea of being able to go back and forward through time is, is very, uh, intriguing to me. Um, both the philosophical level and, and, uh, as a narrative. And so, of course, I can't talk about the time machine without talking about the iconic time machine design. So it's very, like, again, I don't have the novel as a point of reference, and I, I just barely have the 2002 remake as, as, uh, as an idea of what the time machine as a story is. But even though I only, I have a passing familiarity with H.G. Wells' work with it, I still know and admire the, the design of the time machine. And it's so, I mean, you could almost say that it just looks really silly and weird, but it's because it's basically a chair with a, with a, uh, a spinning disc behind it with levers, uh, on kind of a podium type of thing, um, in front of it with a display. And 
like as simplistic and and uh maybe not simplistic well i guess simplistic as that design is it's still just iconic it's it's really interesting like i i love the design of it as as a time machine device like it's i mean it would be almost up there with the delorean um yeah so one of the like there are a couple things that really stood out to me about this movie that kind of really left a huge impression on me so the first is the the visual effects um so even if even in situations where if they're just lighting lighting changes and audio so i'm talking specifically about the visual effects of the time travel so like there are scenes where like lights are flashing in front of in front of Rod Taylor and there's audio distortion and everything like even as simplistic as that that's it's still incredibly effective but what i love most about it is that the movie shows these time lapses of, of time moving outside of the time machine as Rod Taylor is, is traveling through time. And man, every time that this happened, like there's like, we see like bodies dissolve into skeleton. We see the, the landscape in front of, in front of Rod Taylor change and shift and erode and, and move around and everything and, and structures being built and torn down. Like just the way that that's depicted is so gorgeous. Like I, I loved it so much. I was really impressed by that and it made me really excited anytime he got into the time machine. Um, and then another part that I won't go into too heavy of spoilers with it, of course, but there is a destruction sequence in one of the, uh, times that he goes to, um, which first of all, it has a lot to say about, you know, cold war era stuff. I don't know how much of that was in the book, but and I'm not even, frankly, I'm not even sure when the book was published. Um, but just the way that the, there's a, a city that's destroyed. I'll, I'll say that. And just the, this, that sequence is so impressive to me. Like there's, um, the whole set, like they don't kind of, they don't, uh, cut around it or anything. It's just, they have like these models that are just torn down and destroyed. And then, what I also love is that they show um, these like kind of volcanic eruptions and there's lava that's kind of going through, going through the streets. But the thing about it is like, I've seen, like I've seen plenty of like nature documentaries and documentaries about volcanoes and stuff. And like, I've always, I've always kind of loved the way that uh, in a kind of somewhat messed up sense, I love the way that the molten lava is depicted because it's just very colorful and everything. But here, you we get that kind of molten molten lava look but it's like bubbling and every time like it it bubbles up and pops and everything it just it looks more like it's like molten blood like it has this blood like consistency to it that's just that 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 kind of kind of really stuck with me and i really um loved that and so i'm getting more into spoiler territory so I, i'll stay away from spoilers but um a couple things about it is that Obviously, a big part of the story is the Morlocks, which um, I won't go into details, but it's just this, they're the villains of the movie, essentially, and of the story. But what I, and again, I don't have the novel as a point of reference for me, so um, so I don't know how, how involved they are in the book or anything, but I just feel like the one of the movie's shortcomings was that the Morlocks were kind of introduced way late into the movie, and there's an air of mystery surrounding them. So, um, uh, so even though we're introduced to them late in the, late in the game, kind of, 
like set like several moments later is when we kind of get the full extent of what the Morlocks are and what they're doing. And like as a concept, I found that chilling, but I kind of feel like there should have been, I kind of wish that there was more to it. Like there, I wish that there was a bigger build up to it and that the time that he spends in the future was more, um, took up more time of the movie. Like I, I would have been happy spending another 20, 30 minutes in this movie if it meant developing the Morlocks more and developing the final conflict a lot more. Having said that, the actual design of the Morlocks is really cool. Like the, the, uh, effects of their eyes are, are really like the effects of their eyes that they have, like they, they kind of glow in kind of an evil way, uh, the eyes plus the kind of lighting of the kind of big climax of the movie, um, and the setting of where it is, is just, it works so well together that it's, it's kind of chilling and, and, uh, and really, uh, really effective, even though I kind of wish that the Morlocks were explored a lot more. Yeah. And that I guess would be about it. So, um, kind of my final thought about it is that the movie has this, uh, narration like voiceover narration slash kind of framing story where like the movie starts with hg wells coming coming back from the future and uh tell he's basically the entire movie is him telling his friends about what what's happened to him and i wasn't crazy about that because it kind of felt like the narration was a little bit too heavy-handed like i kind of wish that it was more i i would have much rather taken the taken the narration and even the framing story itself out of the equation and had the movie visually like show me the story as opposed to have Rod Taylor tell it to me in voiceover. So that was something I did. I really didn't, uh, uh, didn't like about it. And yeah, but other than that, I mean the, the visual effects were, were really, really well done, surprisingly well done. Um, and I, I was kind of really taken with it and the iconography of the time machine was great um uh yeah so overall i really liked this movie and it's i mean i'm gonna have to check out the the novel of course and i don't know maybe someday someone will will make a a really good adaptation of it not that this i'm putting my foot in my mouth i'm talking about that in uh in in relation to the 2002 remake which wasn't that great um so yeah so that will do it for this episode of anthology um Thank you so much for listening. Um, by the way, I am currently in the midst of my bonus review series on Black Mirror Season 4. Um, the next episode I'm going to be reviewing is, and it's going to come out in a couple days, is um, uh, Hang the DJ, which I'm extremely excited about. I have some very cool... Um, I, I got some very good email feedback from, from listener Robert. And then I also got this interesting comment on the website um, that I'm going to go through uh, that uh, called to attention something in my review of dust. So I was going to, I was thinking about reading the feedback on this episode, but it goes into a lot of the uh, review I did for Archangel, the second episode of, uh, I think it was third um, episode, I uh, know second episode of black mirror season four. Um, so I'm going to save that for my review of hang the DJ. So, uh, go ahead and, uh, you know, make sure you check out those bonus reviews. And of course, if you like what you've heard and you want to help support the show, um, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Um, it helps me out a lot. And you can also donate to the podcast through PayPal by clicking the donate button on anthologypod.com 
or uh, you can set up recurring donations through Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Um, that's always really appreciated and uh, it will also get you access to um, exclusive Patreon uh, film commentary tracks that I, uh, that I, uh, that I record in my free time. So right now there's a review of jingle all the way. I think the next one I'm going to do is probably I love you, man, just because it's one of my favorite comedies of the, well, it's, it's a favorite comedy of mine and, uh, it's currently on Netflix. So I'll probably record a commentary on that, but, um, yeah. So next time on the podcast is episode 47. Um, the whole truth, which is episode 14 of the Twilight Zone's second season. And then as my bonus review, I'm going to be reviewing 2009's Mr. Nobody, uh, which was a special Patreon, uh, suggested review from Robert, uh, our Patreon subscriber who, uh, is at the $10 level where, uh, I get to review a bonus review that he chooses each month. So I'm very excited for that. Um, of course, that will be a special Patreon. Uh, since it is a Patreon suggested bonus review, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to have a complete non-spoiler and spoiler review of it. So, uh, check out Mr. Nobody. It's on Netflix and, uh, and check out my thoughts on it and next time on Anthology. So, um, having said all that, uh, thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For more of Anthology and a full archive of my episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com. And if you want to help support the show, the easiest way you can do that is by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. You can also make donations to the show courtesy of the donate link in the show notes of each episode and on AnthologyPod.com. For recurring donations, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and just choose one of the anthology reward tiers. If you enjoy anthology, feel free to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friend Tiny and occasional guest co-hosts over at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also join The Obsessive Viewer Facebook group at facebook.com slash theobsessiveviewer. For book reviews and commentary on the world of reading, check out our sister site at obsessivebooknerd.com. And for philosophical discussions from a secular viewpoint, check out my friends Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Finally, if you'd like to contact me with your thoughts on the show, my reviews, my bonus reviews, or for any other reason, you can tweet me at obsessiveviewer, send me an email at matt at obsessiveviewer.com, or send me a message on Facebook and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.